Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and the diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvin Rajan, and in today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Parises, a radiology resident in Minnesota. I didn't really know how diverse the field of radiology was until this conversation, but Dr. Parises talks about just how many subspecialties there are in the field. We also talk about one of my greatest fascinations in medicine, technology. Dr. Parises talks about his experience as a pre-med working with the scribing startup that actually used Google Glass, you know, the smart glasses that had a camera and a microphone built in, to enable physicians to focus more on the patient and allow remote scribes to, you know, look through the camera and take care of the documentation part of it. He also discusses how radiology enables him to integrate tech into patient care, as well as the development of artificial intelligence in radiology while also addressing misconceptions about AI taking over the field. I honestly didn't know much about radiology before this, but this was a really eye-opening conversation. I hope you enjoy. Glad to have you here, Dr. Parises. How are you today? Doing well, can't complain. Thanks for having me on. It's very flattering of you. <laughs> of course, of course. And, and I'm excited to talk to you about you know, your field of radiology, but also your journey through medicine and you know being a resident and having, I guess, freshly completed medical school i mean not not super fresh but not relatively close um in your in your past um and then thinking back on your years before that like what was your journey through medicine where did you start where did you uh go into and 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 then ultimately become the the, uh the, the radiology resident you are today yeah so some people knew that they wanted to be physicians the moment they were born or the day after, or at some point really early on in their childhood. And I was not one of those children or people. So I kind of went through high school um, having sports as my main hobby. I was a wrestler in high school. Um, I also did some weightlifting and through discus and always was relatively interested in science and how the human body works. So I always wanted to know like the why behind the physiology and the fitness and the performance side of how the human body works. And, you know, in high school, I took biology, AP biology, uh, marine biology, as well as kind of, you know, other basic classes like chemistry and uh, went up to pre-calc and also took statistics. Um, so I didn't take that many AP courses. Um, I certainly didn't feel smart. So um, I got to a point at the end of high school where I applied, you know, took the SAT, ACT, um, went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I initially started as a psychology major, mm -hmm. although I never took a single psychology course. It was just kind of what I was proposed as. So I had some inkling I wanted to do something with improving people's lives and their health, but I really had no idea what that might be or what it might look like because I didn't have that many mentors in my life. So come college, it was a big, big adjustment. There's people around me who seemed way, way smarter, way more determined, way more motivated. And I think being around a group of people like that will basically push you, as cheesy as it sounds, it'll kind of push you to achieve your right. full, full potential, right? right? So I got to University of California, Santa Cruz, and I then switched over to what I thought I would be more interested in, which was neuroscience. So I started taking a lot of biology courses and kind of the usual pre-med courses that you guys 
all know about physics, chemistry, organic chemistry, English, math, et cetera, and so on. Um, and then once I got to those upper division biology courses, that's when kind of a switch kind of went on my mind towards the end of third year of college. So it wasn't until I had a professor um, who taught endocrinology or the study of hormones and how they work in the body. And she really inspired me and kind of really, really pushed me to my limits as far as studying in undergrad. And she always tied things clinically or medically. Um, and I really appreciated that. So then I went into my fourth year of college and I started taking many, many more upper division biology courses like anatomy, physiology, microbiology, um, as well as molecular biology. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I really kind of, I felt like I hit a stride there. So I was like, okay, if I'm gonna, if I'm really enjoying these courses, then I probably would enjoy medical school. Um, so I just did my best uh, to kind of keep at grades as high as possible. So I was not a 4.0 student by any means. I mean, if we know statistics kind of on the bell curve, most people will be average or somewhere along the middle of that bell curve. And that's kind of where I felt. So was no genius by any means. So if I can make it this far, I'm at the end of my first year of residency, then so can you is my message. So that was kind of my path. You know, I had mentors here and there. I would shadow at the hospital, uh, shadow some family and friends just to kind of get an idea like, do I want to do medicine? Do I want physical therapy, dentistry, pharmacy? Do I want so chiropractic? Nice. So many options. Uh, the options are limitless. Um, and then I find myself thinking like, okay, um, either an MD or DO degree will allow me even more flexibility. It'll basically allow me to postpone my career decisions even <laughs> a little bit more. Because as you know, with the uh, with a doctorate of medicine degree or a doctorate of osteopathic medicine degree, um, you can do clinical work, like take care of patients. You can also do research at a university setting. You can do a lot of teaching and mentorship and kind of guiding young physicians or um, residents and medical students and pre-med students. Or you could go into industry, into the pharmaceutical industry, drug development, or even like government and policy. And I mean, the doors are kind of wide open once you yeah. kind of earn that degree after your um, after your name. So those are some of the reasons why I decided to go into medical school. And you know, people have asked me like, "Would you do it all over again? Would you do it again?" Yeah. And my answer is, I wouldn't do it a second time, but I'm sure, uh, sure as hell glad that I did it at least once because um, it is a very, very unique experience, and I definitely wouldn't trade it for for anything because I think I found um, I found the right specialty for me, and in my never humble opinion, I think radiology is the best kept secret in medicine. So it's a little okay. bit about me, a little bit about my path and yeah. how I got here. Obviously there's a lot that I've left out, so happy to talk about any of that. For sure, and we're talking more about the radiology part of it because I am really interested in that, um, that aspect of it. But yeah, no, you really bring up a really good point where going into medicine is a really good way to postpone your plans and, and explore so much more, right? Like I remember I came into college, right? I was a little bit different. I came in in high school. I was like, okay, I, I had a shadowing opportunity in, in India and I was watching a doctor there and that kind of motivated me to pursue medicine, but he was a surgeon. And so when I came into college, I was like, I want to be a surgeon. Like, I know I want to be a surgeon. And then shadowing and experiencing other things, I was like, I don't know if I really want to be a surgeon. Um, and now I have absolutely no clue what I want to do. I just know I want to go into medical school. And 
and do something with the same point that you brought up with you can teach you can explore these diverse specialties you can do research it's just like so it just encapsulates so many things that that can satisfy you in you know intellectually um humanitarian um and endeavors and things like that it's just it's just such an an interesting thing where you this is i mean i don't know many other fields so i can't speak to others but it's like a field where you get the best of a lot of different things yeah i'd agree with that i mean even within just the clinical realm of medicine you have so many specialties to choose from you have surgical medical mm-hmm. uh, diagnostic um, and everything in between where you have a mix of both medicine and surgery you have high acuity and low acuity you have rural and urban um, uh, national international I mean you have so much flexibility to do um, only medical work only surgical work or a mix of medicine and surgery so I think um, I think the medical degree is very very unique in that in that aspect right and and there's one one thing that you mentioned about about tech and, and and we talked a little bit about this before, but that had that made your interest in radiology. But I was I was looking through some of your your posts um, on on your Instagram page, and I saw that you did some work with a um, like a virtual sh- a virtual scribing um, company that used Google Glass. I think that's that's amazing. Like people physicians wearing Google Glass, and you're literally like watching this live interaction with a patient and and kind of noting things down that that just seems like such an amazing interaction where the clinician and the patient are still you know having a very um active conversation you're not having to you know sit down and do this kind of documentary stuff and but at the same time you are still getting all the information you 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 need you want to talk a little bit about that experience for you because I, I just i'm fascinated by that yeah people seem to be really interested in this experience that i had prior to medical school so so i graduated college in 2014 and after that i had to take the mcat a second time so i took about three to four months to study for the mcat and towards the end of my studying a company had reached out to me called augmetics and they simply found me on LinkedIn because I had some medical scribing experience in the emergency department. And they are a company that did or that does medical scribing or remote medical documentation using Google Glass. So I interviewed and told them I would start after I take my MCAT. So I worked at this Google Glass startup for about a year and a half um, prior to starting medical school. So between 2000. 14 and 16. So the way the service works is that the physicians would wear the Google Glass unit. If you can imagine, it kind of looks like glasses. It has a little right. um, nose kind of comfort uh, plastic things that right. sit like glasses. And then it kind of has like a like a wire frame. And then on the side where your ear is, it has like a touchpad. Then in the front where your eye would be is a camera. And then there's a small, small prism. And so that prism projects a kind of virtual or digital screen, like a hologram. And you can interact with that by using the touchpad on the side. So this Google Glass unit, the important thing to know is that it has a microphone and a camera on it. So if you can imagine the family doctor going to go see their patients in clinic, um, they would walk into the room. And because there's a camera and a microphone on the Google Glass unit, the video could be streamed 
through the Wi-Fi. This is all HIPAA compliant. So it'd be streamed in real time, it'd be all live. And then a scribe would be on the other end of that um, interaction. They could see a live video of this happening. And so they would have access to the electronic medical record that might be Epic or all scripts or, you know, you name your favorite electronic mm-hmm. medical record. Epic's and they would favorite. do the, <laughs> yeah, and I say that jokingly because no one likes uh, medical documentation. Um, hence why this service was born. So the scribe could do the notes in real time as they could hear and see what was going on. So it was a fantastic kind of shadowing experience for me. I got exposure to so many different specialties, hematology, oncology, orthopedics, rheumatology, family medicine, internal medicine. Um, And I also got to travel a little bit. I got to go to certain clinics and work with the doctors, teach them how to use the device, make sure the Wi-Fi hotspots were good in the clinic so that the, um, the signal wouldn't be dropped and um, kind of basically got to follow them along for the entire day. It was uh, really cool. And I got to see not only what they were doing medically and clinically, but um, also kind of what their downtime looked like, how they interacted with their medical assistants, their nurses, um, how they interacted uh, with their family during lunch. So that was pretty cool. Um, So that's kind of how it works. And uh, they're still around. They have scribes in San Francisco where they're based. They also have scribes in India and Bangladesh, and I think now that I've left, they have um, branched out to the Dominican Republic as well. So uh, that's a little bit about this company called Augmetics. It's a very unique experience, and I'm very thankful I had it, Um, but also very thankful that I applied to medical school in that entire time and am where I am right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's fascinating, though, like seeing that kind of technology being implemented already and then, you know, yourself having a part in that, like... Did you ever think about, I guess, I mean, being involved in, in, in this kind of implementation, like you said, of sometimes teaching them how to use this kind of technology? Did that kind of stem any kind of interest in the future of technology in medicine? And, and, and how did you, I guess, process that? Yeah, at the time, I don't think anyone really has kind of the foresight of like what effect will this experience right. have on me now or in five years down the line. Um, but after um, that work experience, then I got to medical school. And then during my second year of medical school, I did a lot of computational biology research with a biochemistry professor. So because we were using a lot of software tools to kind of model this biochemical and pharmacologic uh, uh, molecular data, basically, um, I found myself really kind of enjoying that process of using digital tools to do science or now to do medicine um, and radiology. So then I got to third year of medical school where you do your clinical rotations. And I had always heard about the specialty of radiology, how it's like super interesting and it's just a great specialty. And the one thing that you hear about it is that only socially introverted and you know socially awkward introverts go into radiology because they don't want to see patients. So. I went into it with an open mind and find myself actually really enjoying the intellectual uh, challenge of reading imaging. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then I went through the rest of my third year of medical school, um, doing the the rest of the specialties, family medicine, internal medicine, emergency medicine, um, surgery, pediatrics, OBGYN, and psychiatry. And still would always think back to my experience early on in third year, like, 
okay, I, I think radiology is probably where I should be. And then during fourth year, you kind of do more elective rotations and then you apply. And um, I think you kind of find your group at the end. So I think those experiences in tech and computational biology early on kind of um, led me down the path that I've taken now because I think it's safe to say that radiology is the closest thing that you can get to a computer job or a desk job in medicine. It lends itself really nicely to working remotely and doing teleradiology and helping, you know, 100 to 200 uh, patients a day because you can go through many, many different scans and images and really have a big impact in medicine and ultimately on a patient's life. So. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and you bring up tele-radiology. Tele, um, and I find that fascinating too, right? In, in areas that ne don't necessarily have specialties and and access to those, you can easily, you know, doing something like that, get those kind of resources to those areas. Um, and radiology plays such a big part in that, right? And it's that that's really interesting. Yeah, it's... Um... The teleradiology aspect of it is interesting because, for example, you could live on the other side of the world mm -hmm. and then be reading imaging for a hospital on the other side of the world, let's say New Zealand, New York, or India, California, whatever have you, and you can kind of capitalize on the time difference because hospitals are still going to require imaging in the middle of the night, right? So you can imagine how you might be working an 8 or 10 or 12 hour shift um, and then be able to cover uh, radiology services for a hospital that is far, far away during those really off hours that someone who is living in that time zone may not desire to work. Uh, so absolutely. Right. And how has your experiences been in radiology after, you know, those initial experiences and rotations? Yeah, I mean, you basically just learn more and more and more. Um, you know, I've, I've been exposed to, I'd say, almost every um, subspecialty of radiology at this point. Probably with the exception of nuclear medicine, I've only had a little bit of nuclear medicine exposure and a little bit of breast imaging exposure. Um, but you know, there's so much in the field. I love the breadth of diversity that it offers and the different fellowships that you can do. So interventional radiology is one specialty, um, one subspecialty within radiology. There's also musculoskeletal and neuroradiology and pediatric radiology and abdominal imaging or body imaging. Um, so those are kind of the, the main ones. Um, and they all kind of offer something different. So um, again, I can kind of postpone what I want my career to look like or like make that final decision, right, for quite some time. So maybe the one drawback to radiology is that it is a relatively long training path. So you do your first year of residency, which is an intern year, and then you do four years of diagnostic radiology residency, and then you do typically one to two years of fellowship. So it's wow. six years after medical school. So after high school, you're looking at 14 years or 15 years. So it can be quite, you know, if you take two gap years, it could be 16 years. So it can be quite the path. Um, but, you know, we train for a long time because even 99% accuracy in radiology is not good enough because you're still missing one thing per 100 patients, right? So we have to get as close to perfect as we can. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, well, do you, have you found like a particular interest in those different interests or different branches of radiology that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I'll probably have a better idea in about a year when I rotate mm -hmm. through all of them, like fully rotate through all of them. 
Um, I mean, if I had to pick tomorrow, it'd probably be up between um, neuroradiology and musculoskeletal. So musculoskeletal has to do with the muscles and bones and um, sports medicine and uh, kind of orthopedic stuff. So you're interacting more with the sports medicine doctors and the orthopedic surgeons. Whereas uh, neuroradiology is really fascinating because it has everything to do with the brain and the spinal cord. So you're interacting more with the neurosurgeons and the neurologists. Um, and they're both just interesting for different reasons. You know, maybe I could rationalize it to myself because I've had an athletic background previously. Maybe that's why I'm attracted to musculoskeletal radiology. Who knows? Gotcha. Yeah. And in particular, how I'm kind of curious, how does the role of the radiologist fit in kind of the entire care of a patient, right? Like say someone comes in with like, uh, some kind of musculoskeletal injury they first see like you know their their physician and then they would be recommended like how does that i guess process work and how when do they eventually get to you yeah that's a great question so it depends so all good questions the answer is it depends um so let's say hypothetically you are in the primary care clinic and you're seeing your family doctor or your internal medicine doctor and I don't know, let's say you're having chronic shoulder pain for a year um, and your physician thinks that it's a, I don't know, rotator cuff issue. Um, so at that point, they may decide to treat you conservatively with, let's say, anti-inflammatory medicines and then um, refer you to physical therapy or, uh, you know, depending on what the problem is, of course, they may refer you to a surgeon. Um, and part of that workup Kind of includes ordering imaging. So you might start with an x-ray of the shoulder. Um, if that shows nothing and you still suspect something severe, you might even get an MRI of the shoulder. So an MRI would give a lot, a lot more detail uh, than an x-ray would. So that's kind of where it fits in the primary care-esque setting. And you can imagine uh, kind of how this might work for any sort of complaint, headache, abdominal pain, chest pain, hip pain, etc., and so on. So in the hospital setting, you know, the patients are a little bit sicker, right? Or a lot sicker. Right. So you might have patients who have a stroke, for example. So if the emergency doctor suspects a stroke, then they might call the neurology team and then they will come assess them for uh, signs and symptoms of a, of a stroke. And then we'll order a lot of tests. And one of those tests might be a CT scan of the head. So with a CT scan of the head, we can see if there is a stroke or if there's some sort of bleed in the brain uh, that we need to treat emergently. Of course, the CT scan isn't 100%. So if they still suspect that something nasty is going on, then they might get a MRI of the brain, which again, shows more detail than a CT scan would. So that's kind of how things might work. Um, you know, it's different again, if, if it's like a patient who is in a car accident or slipped and fell and they have a lot of broken bones or someone who is assaulted. So these trauma patients, they might have you know, their head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis imaged with x-rays and uh, CT scans. So um, it just depends on kind of what the problem is. Um, you know, the OBGYN world, you might order um, more ultrasound tests, like ultrasounds of the, uh, of the pelvic region, uh, for example. So again, it just depends. Wow. That's, yeah, I mean, there's so many, like, there's such a, it's such a key role in, in diagnosing things. Do you, so when, would, they do it and then they send kind of the results to you or they send the, the scans to you and you interpret them and then report back? 
Yeah, yeah, great question again. So um, let's say we have a trauma patient, someone who's in a car accident and they may have several broken bones. So they might go to the emergency department and be evaluated there. And then, you know, depending on how unstable their physiology is and how critically ill they are, um, you know, they'll have things done to them, uh, blood drawn and a few different types of tests done before they go to the CT scanner. So there is a job called a radiology technologist or a rad tech. And so these are the people who are actually acquiring the images for us. Mm. So they are, you know, putting the patient through the CT scanner, doing kind of all the computer stuff to acquire the images. And then we as radiologists are in a separate workroom, kind of the, the reading room is what it's called. And that's where, can you still hear me okay? Okay. Yeah. And the reading room is where the radiologists do their work. And so once those images are acquired, then they get uploaded to the PACS system or the picture archiving communication system. And this is the software that we use to do our job. And so we basically have a list of studies to get through. And so we will open up a study. So we open up the CT scan or, the, or most likely all of the scans that come up, and then we'll scroll through them and take our time very systematically to go through all of the anatomy and see if there is indeed something wrong. Let's say a, um, a collection of blood, um, an injury to the brain, um, a collapsing of the lung, uh, enlarged heart, uh, broken bones, dislocated bones. You can, right. you can imagine how many problems that we, could, we can diagnose and see on imaging. So then we also have a dictaphone or like kind of like a microphone. And mm. we do our job by speaking into it, talking all the medical jargon that we talk about and then that gets filled into a report section and so this report is what gets pushed out to the electronic medical record for the clinicians the emergency medicine doctors the family doctors the OBGYNs, um, pediatricians surgeons whoever needs to access this report to kind of manage patient care um, they will see this and then they're going to use that as a data point and it's a powerful data point often It'll make it'll be the decision between taking someone to surgery or not, or treating them with medicine or not treating them at all, for example. So that's kind of how um, radiologists do their job and kind of where they fit into the medical um, kind of the the medical care of a patient. Because imaging is is an incredibly powerful data point because there's other data points too. You know, you have studies where uh, they look at the heart, like the EKG or the electrocardiogram. Mm, right. Then you have other things like blood work and you can order so many different types of tests of the blood. So um, yeah, basically we uh, focus on our domain of imaging. Gotcha. That's interesting. And I know like for normal, like for not normal, but for like family medicine residencies or like pediatric residencies, typically like you'd have the resident take a case, but then they would have to report it to the attending. Is there like a similar system of like when you're doing like you're reviewing a certain um, certain reports or certain MRIs, then do you have to report like, I guess as like another gateway to your attending and then you have like a central kind of like authority for that? Yeah, very, very similar. So um, again, as a resident, you have access to the PACS software system. And so you might pick a study, you might just pull it off the list basically, and then you open it and then that locks it from other residents or radiologists mm. from opening it. So you focus on creating this report for this study. So once you're, let's say, you know, an hour or two hours into uh, the workflow or whatever is good, a good stopping point basically, and you have, let's say, I don't know, 
10 or 20 studies to review with the attending, then the attending will open the studies up. Um, you'll sit right next to him or her, and you guys will talk about the findings and maybe talk about what you missed or how the attending would rephrase the verbiage or how they would restructure the report. So everyone has their own style and you kind of pick and choose, you know, as you gain more experience, you kind of take what you like from each attending. And that's how you kind of staff out um, a patient. And I say patient in air quotes because our patients are on the computer basically um, for, for diagnostic work anyways. Of course, radiologists also do procedures and some radiologists even have to go to clinic. Um, so that's kind of uh, how it works, you know, resident to attending uh, relationship. Gotcha, gotcha. And then it could differ based on the subspecialty as well. And then, then that's a whole other thing. That's that's really interesting. Um, and I mean, this is something like whenever I've, I've shadowed and like, you know, we get the x-ray, they'll like look at the, the x-ray and be like, oh, it's obviously this. And I'm like, what are you even looking at? I can't even tell. Like, did you have experiences like that? I mean, in the beginning of your, your time and I'm like, how was it, I guess, getting used to identifying things, um, you know, routine conditions and being able to identify stuff? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So that kind of actually takes me back to my experience as a medical scribe in the emergency department. So mm -hmm. it was maybe on my third or fourth shift in the emergency department where maybe an hour in um, one of the attendings, he was like, oh, you're a pre-med here, come with me. And so we went to the special computer to mo computer monitors that are like you know 6K or 8K um, in the emergency department at the time, and we just pulled up a chest X-ray, and he uh, went through it systematically, kind of how any other physician would know how to uh, how to go through a chest X-ray. And I, like you, was like, "What is this? I have no idea what I'm looking at. It's just black and white and shades of gray." And he was pointing at. I still remember what he said. He's like these are infiltrates. And I'm like, what is an infiltrate? Like, you know, I have nothing to hang my hat on, right, to even yeah. have this in my mind. And then I got to medical school, and then in medical school, that's where you start getting a little taste of radiology, of like, hey, this is what an ultrasound looks like, this is what an MRI and CT scan and X-ray, or uh, this is what a PET scan might look like. So you kind of get an idea about where these imaging studies kind of fit in uh, diagnosing and treating disease because each test is good for different things. So um, you get, you know, long answer short, you basically get more familiar with this stuff the more reps you put in. So at this point, I've seen, uh, probably had more exposure to imaging than other residents have, but those residents and other specialties have probably had more exposure to their, you know, patients in their specialty of choice than I have. So it just, it just uh, takes some time to kind of acquire the knowledge over time. Um, and in third and fourth year of medical school, that's where you get kind of that more clinical acumen about which test is best to order. Um, and then in residency, I mean, that's when you're really like in it. And um, that's when you really become much more comfortable because you're really doing it every day. So that way, when you take time to study, then you're getting a much more comprehensive uh, education because now you know kind of what the most common things would be in real life. And now in the books, then you'd be learning like, much more rare diagnoses that you may encounter in the future. So, gotcha, 
Gosh, and you see how, like, relative, how, what, what's common and what's not. And I guess that leads to my next question is, we always see those, those videos of, of crazy things in, in x-rays. Have you had any experiences review, reviewing um, different kinds of scans? And, you know, you have your, your routine stuff, and then all of a sudden, bam, you see something, like, a little, a little out of the ordinary. Um, so I've only had two months of radiology this first year, this intern year, and some interns don't have any, any radiology uh, rotations during their intern year. Um, so I don't have that many interesting cases to share with you quite yet, but it does bring me back to a shift in the emergency department, um, earlier this year, maybe in the winter. And, and, uh, there's this interaction with, uh, a, a patient who may be five years old, and you know this is all HIPAA compliant. I'm changing yeah. name and age and presentation. And let's say they are five years old, and they had like this choking or hoarse coarseness in their throat. Um, and uh, someone jokingly said, like, "Hey, maybe this patient like inhaled a coin," because that is a classic, classic board question. Because kids will put things in their ears and their nose yeah. and their mouth, and um, Lo and behold, we got a chest x-ray and you see a circular metallic radio-opaque object because right, the coin is more dense sitting exactly where the airway would be, right? So this kind of explains um, how the patient presented and why they were, yeah. I guess, complaining like kids present a little differently. So um, that was an interesting case, certainly. Yeah, and I'm sure they're just going to keep on coming on with your with your years of experience. That's, that's awesome. Um, well, I just, I, I find it really interesting because I don't, really know much about radiology and this has been really like I guess eye-opening to the field and and something that you know I wasn't even really thinking about um into now like you know I've always been someone that's been fascinated by technology and 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 things like that anything related to tech and um I don't know as I've grown you have seen more of this kind of integration with tech and healthcare and it's it's cool seeing my two like biggest passions kind of like come together in this way and like recently there was like microsoft mesh announced where you can like or you're hopefully in the future going to be able to interact with your with your patients and with your physicians through like holograms and that's just insane to me and seeing how it's going in the future like i'm just super excited so i mean i'm definitely going to keep keep an eye out for for radiology now now that uh i know a little bit more about it but um yeah, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk about um, artificial intelligence too. That's kind yeah. of a hot topic in in the specialty. I would love to, yeah. Yeah. So I had an experience in medical school where I was doing a dermatology rotation just because mm-hmm. I was interested in the field, and, and you always hear good things about the specialty. So I was like, no, I got to do it for a month. And the dermatologist, there was two of them, who were uh, trying to convince me to go into dermatology instead of yeah. instead of radiology, and the reason that they were citing day in and day out, you know, week in, week out, was that artificial intelligence is going to replace the radiologist. Um, so I think it's it's pretty pretty cool that we have AI in our specialty and that we're embracing it so much. So it's an incredibly, incredibly exciting field of research. And the thing is, people have been saying or talking about that some sort of algorithm is going to replace the doctor you know, since 1976, I think there was a New England Journal of Medicine article in 1976 that described how internal medicine doctors, hospitalists, doctors who were kind of coordinating care for the patient in the hospital, that they were going to get replaced by an algorithm because, quote unquote, all they do is interpret certain data points to come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. 
and you know hospitalists are still around um, so you know fast forward another 50 years and AI is here um, it's actually been here for a while already so we already have it in a mammography so with in mammograms or x-rays of uh, the breast to catch breast cancer um, they they have so breast imagers or breast imaging radiologists they have a tool called computer-aided diagnosis or CAD and if you ask any breast imaging radiologist worth their salt how do you like this software tool is it any good they'll tell you it's really not that great so lots of false positives and it's not perfect um, we still have a long ways to go with AI um, I think there are some hurdles that we have to think about very carefully before we actually implement this uh, this tool because it's really only going to be a tool in our arsenal right. of tools in medicine to take better care of patients so the first question is how do we implement it in the current IT infrastructure and software that exists so that's already a, a big big question um, another hurdle would be you know humans are inherently biased no one is perfect so um, humans ultimately design these algorithms so these algorithms are inherently biased so there's no way to decouple the bias from the algorithm or from the human and it's funny if you talk to the tech people how do you solve for this well their answer is we can we can design an algorithm to correct for the bias the so it's kind of like right so it's kind of like asking a surgeon how do you fix this surgical complication well you need more surgery well you know not everything that looks like a nail is a like needs a hammer, right? So, yeah. Um, bias, yeah, huge issue. Uh, another issue would be the black box phenomenon or the explainability crisis. And what that means is that these algorithms basically work by being fed data or certain images mm -hmm. that is like labeled, and we know exactly what uh, these images mean. And then they spit out like um, it, it kind of trains them. There's there's these right. neural networks like machine on the learning, inside. Right? exactly machine learning so um, these neural networks and this machine learning algorithm is a black box you can't be like hey how are you coming to the conclusion that you're coming that this is a pneumonia or that this is pulmonary edema or fluid in the lungs versus something else like I don't know a pneumothorax or a collapsed lung well you can ask a radiologist how you, this person came to these conclusions or why they think the diagnosis is one of three things because these things are the most common and they don't think it's something else because of so-and-so reasons so you can't ask, there's no explainability with the algorithms. Um, also, so those are some, some issues. Yeah. Um, there's also kind of a reproducibility issue in science as a whole. So at this point, I think a lot of universities and labs are so advanced that it's hard to reproduce an experiment um, because other institutions simply don't have the tools or the resources that that institution has developed. And oftentimes, journals don't even want to publish uh, papers that are simply reproduced experiments. So we have to make sure that these algorithms are reproducible and reliable and durable over time, right? Um, so obviously, I can talk about AI for, for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are just some of the hurdles. I think in the end, it's only going to be a tool to help improve patient outcomes in the end. It's going to make the radiologist more efficient. Um, more accurate and just better at their job, I think. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, even if AI is able to even identify like basic stuff, like you can never just 
send that to your if patient or to, or to the physician. You always need a radiologist there to double, triple check to make sure that that the, it didn't miss anything. Like you said, it's it's just taking what you fed it, and if you if you didn't feed it, you know that patient's unique experiences. It's not going to interpret it um, as it should. And I mean, time time will improve algorithms for sure, but. I, like you said, 1976. You said, yeah, it's gonna be a good number of years before, um, before we're gonna get anywhere close to that. So, yeah, I, I I like what you said about it being a tool, though, because I definitely agree that it it's gonna be a huge tool in healthcare in general. And I'm thinking like, especially in um, fields or or in the documentation side of it and like the data side of it it's going to be very very helpful right and and it's just been kind of weird for me some of the some of the physicians or, or most of the physicians i shadow in the hospital you know have to bring in like a laptop or use a computer in the particular patient room and it makes sense right you want to make sure that you're getting all the information you have and you don't forget anything um, but it does kind of hurt that that patient physician interaction and and you know, I was shadowing at this private practice, and he said like that's the reason he he quit computer systems and he went back to like you know just dictating things and then like outsourcing, um, kind of describing like like you like you mentioned earlier, and it's just better for the patient physician interaction and, and and stuff like that. So I think at the end of the day, these technologies I think will just hopefully improve that that interaction and and. Um, like you said improve patient outcomes but yeah. yeah and on that on that same note you know um the soft skills the bedside manner the emotional intelligence are incredibly important even now so i think in the future once we become even more technical and more advanced with and more sophisticated with our tests and tools and treatments mm-hmm. that we're gonna like the importance of the soft skills are only gonna it's only going to increase. So we're going to need people with even even more emotional intelligence, more empathy, more of these compassionate skills, more of the listening skills, right? Um, at least that's my opinion. You know, you have to also think what would my what would my what would my mom want? What would my sister or brother or grandparents want? Um, would they want would they would they trust a computer read or would they mm. prefer a human being to be able to ask and go to with questions? Um, yeah, and and you know, aside from from that, you know, there's there's one um, one thing that I think will prevent it from uh, kind of AI from basically taking over the world, and that's liability. Yeah. Who's gonna who's gonna be responsible for uh, malpractice claims? Yeah. yeah. So is it gonna be you know, are these tech companies? Are they gonna own up to it when they're when they're uh, system ultimately glitches right. or gets hacked or goes yeah. down or something happens and who owns the data mm-hmm. you know there's so many so many questions um, right so I think uh, there are other much lower hanging fruit that they can probably focus on first I think one might be like scheduling like simply just scheduling you know it's gonna be scheduling patients in a clinic it's gonna be scheduling patients in the radiology department for their scans or um, scheduling employees for their schedule at the hospital, for example. Um, and then there's other things like triaging studies. So what that means is basically like, let's say you have like a long list and you work for a busy emergency department as a radiologist, you might have a list of 20 or 50 studies that are really packed, piling up. And it's just you and a handful of colleagues who are trying to get through the work. Well, you might have an algorithm that is able to quickly scan the list 
and then maybe find something life-threatening that they can flag for you and then maybe push to the top of the list so that you are reading that study next. Mm. And so that could ultimately help uh, a patient. So it's not giving like a a final read, but it's kind of like acting like a preliminary wet read. Um, So yeah, there's there's gonna be tons of use cases for it, but um, also tons of hurdles to overcome. Yeah, yeah, and you're gonna be at the forefront of it. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's only a positive, you know. I think it's really yeah. cool. So the practice of radiology, as we know it today, is going to dramatically change in thirty years at the end of my career, just like it has changed, you know, thirty years ago when, um, you know, kind of at the turn of uh, two thousand when everyone started becoming fellowship trained. So uh, because imaging techniques were getting so so advanced, that's when people started doing like. You basically have to do a fellowship. You have to right. subspecialize and really gain deep knowledge in a certain field of radiology. So, yeah, things will things will change, and I don't think that's yeah. a bad thing. <laughs> no, definitely not. I think I think that's. I mean, we've got to get you know improve things, and and, and that's what's going to happen in the future. You know, hopefully. So, um, right before we close out, I don't want to keep you too long, but I just want to talk you know a little bit about your. Um, your social media and and the the work you do on social media so i mean from what i've seen and and the posts that i've i've looked at it's been a lot about your journey really in connecting with people that like you said didn't go into life thinking that they wanted to be a doctor since the day they were born um and i, I think that's a really good perspective to put out there right and, and to provide people with a model or like a, a mentor of someone that didn't you know have it all figured out right in, from the get-go um, is that kind of what you're trying to do with your 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 online presence and, and connecting with people or, or is there something else as well yeah I appreciate you asking about that and the, the whole reason why I started this profile actually wasn't for that reason that you just mm-hmm. described although that is what it has kind of transformed into mm-hmm. and I'm super happy about it um, so about a year ago, as we know, we had something called coronavirus upend our world. So I have, uh, you know, on my personal page, I was just posting on my stories kind of reviews of scientific articles as they were being published. I was kind of digesting the news and kind of the media and basically just explaining to my friends and family on Instagram stories um, what everything means, how the tests work what these treatments are, you know, the quality of the evidence, just giving my perspective as a fourth year medical student who will be a resident physician in just a few months. And this is just my perspective. And my inbox was flooded with DMs, people, you know, telling me how much they appreciated me, friends reaching out to me, you know, friends that I haven't spoken with since high school, or you know, people share me their most intimate stories about how their loved one passed away or they got COVID or they have symptoms of COVID now that they had it. So I, I kind of realized by accident the power of social media. And so then after I graduated, I got a little bit of courage. I started my residency and then I started a different medical page, the one that you have found. And so I continued sharing information about COVID. Then I started sharing information about the vaccines. And over time, it has basically just become me documenting my journey. And I was surprised at how receptive people were to that. And so it's also interesting to hear from people like you who are also interested in, in my journey even before I got to medical school. So it's required me to do a little bit of introspection and reflection. And it's been 
such a passion project of mine. It's been uh, really wonderful. You know, um, I'm just a regular dude who just has tried to yeah. put their best foot forward. And you know, if I can do it, like I said earlier, then anyone listening to this or watching or following my Instagram stories or reels or whatever have you, then you definitely can do it too. Um, as long as you just put in uh, a little bit of sweat, uh, you can definitely do it. For sure. I mean, that's kind of the reassurance we need, you know, and, and going through application season was like, you know, it was tough, like thinking about all these things and, 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 and going through it. And then, you know, people like yourself seeing, seeing that journey. Cause I mean, like my first interactions with physicians I was scared right like I was like oh my gosh it's like a physician do they have time for me like wow and then but the thing is you know with with people like yourself putting your you know stories out there and, and your journeys out there that's really encouraged I guess a more collaborative spirit and and understanding even before people even start medical school which has been been awesome so I, I do really appreciate it and I'm sure a lot of people do as well so uh, so keep keep doing it it's awesome and thank you thank you for that thank you I appreciate the uh, encouragement and the feedback that that truly means a lot because I never know really who's tuning in unless they send me a message or a comment or yeah. like like I, I really have no idea um, sure so I appreciate yeah, I mean, it. like I was on a you live know, could, one time I was on a live one time I think you were doing and it was like there was a bunch of pre-med people asking questions I was like this is awesome like this is because it was like it was just in a time where we're not in person to like to ask you know and connect with people like this is the next best thing so yeah definitely definitely awesome yeah and as you know there's been a lot of more a lot more virtual shadowing sessions online and on YouTube so it's been uh, it's been nice to see kind of what the pre-meds now are doing it's crazy for me to yeah. say that like the young kids now like what are they doing <laughs> And well, they're being creative, just like kind of how, how I was creative, and they're just trying to do their best and kind of get through the day and make it through this incredibly stressful process. Because I remember applying to medical school, I remember being so lost, and you know, any sort of guidance helps tremendously. I remember how much it helped me as a pre med. So if I can pay a little bit of it back, then um, then it's worth it, even if I can just help one person. So for sure. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Parisis, for being on the podcast. Uh, really enjoy everything that you shared and, and all the insight. And yeah, again, thank you so much. Absolutely. Again, thanks for having me. Very flattering of you. And best of luck. Um, you'll, definitely, you'll definitely make it this cycle, I'm sure. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. And thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitzvectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify Drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday.